Ten years ago this week, a curious thing happened. During the intermission of a ballet performance at the State Kremlin Palace, Vladimir Putin and his wife of 30 years gave an interview to a TV news crew where they revealed that they were no longer married. It was a brief and really kind of wooden exchange, but it's also one of the rare moments in his long presidency when Putin spoke openly about his family life. Well, that's it. All my activity, all my work is connected to publicity, to absolute publicity. Some people like it, some don't. But there are people for whom it's completely irreconcilable. Lyudmila Alexandrovna has stood watch for eight. Actually, it's nine years already, right? So, in general, this is a joint decision. Yes, I join with Vladimir Vladimirovich in saying that it was indeed our joint decision. And our marriage is concluded due to the fact that we practically don't see each other. Vladimir Vladimirovich is fully immersed in his work. Our children have grown up, and they live their own lives. So it turns out that everyone has their own life. And I truly don't like publicity, and the flights are difficult for me. And we practically don't see each other. Lyudmila Alexandrovna mentioned the children. We love them very much. We are very proud of them. They have truly grown up. They are building their own lives. By the way, they received their education in Russia and live in Russia permanently. And we, Lyudmila Alexandrovna and I, will always remain very close friends. Always. We're sure of it. We all have a very good relationship. And I'm very grateful to Vladimir Vladimirovich that he continues to support me and the children. He cares a lot about the children. And the children have always known that. I apologize about this, but one word didn't come up, and I'm afraid to say it aloud. Is this divorce? You could say it's a civilized divorce. Thank you very much. Back in June 2013, there was already widespread speculation about Vladimir Putin's secret love life, which focused largely on his alleged relationship with former Olympic gymnast Alina Kabaeva. Since then, investigative journalists have uncovered a lot more about Putin's relationship with Kabaeva, digging up evidence about other lovers as well, other children and the elaborate schemes Putin and his entourage use to conceal their own wealth and corruption. And that's what we'll be talking about on this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, And on this week's episode, you'll hear from two of Russia's preeminent investigative journalists and about their work exposing how Vladimir Putin and his inner circle control wealth in Russia and keep their families out of the public eye. Yes, talking about people's private lives, especially their sex lives, is risky business and it's potentially invasive or just cheap. But in the case of Putin and his family, there are actually valuable insights here to be gained about the nature of his regime and how he rewards and hides his loved ones. But before I get to today's interviews, do me a favor and don't skip through the following short message. Emily Laskin here, news editor for Medusa's English Language Edition. For the better part of a decade, we've brought you breaking news and in-depth stories from across Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. We have millions of readers in Russian and in English around the world, and we remain the biggest independent news source inside Russia. For readers in Russia, though, openly supporting or sharing our work is dangerous. Earlier this year, the Russian authorities designated Medusa an undesirable organization. 
outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a national security threat. In other words, all of our work, from investigative reports and podcasts to social media posts and newsletters, it's all a crime now inside Russia. And anyone living in Russia who shares our work or donates money to our crowdfunding campaign risks criminal charges that could land them in prison for years. That's where you, our international audience, can make a huge difference. Your support has never been more important than it is now. And your donations sustain our work now more than ever. So please contribute if you can and help spread the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, let's get on with the show. My two guests today are investigative journalists who have worked together on multiple major stories. Roman Badanin, the founder and editor-in-chief of Project Media, and Andrei Sakharov, a special correspondent who's reported groundbreaking stories at outlets like Fantanka News, RPK, Project, and BBC News Russian. In November 2021, Badanin and Zakharov broke the story that Vladimir Putin apparently has another daughter from a woman in St. Petersburg named Svetlana Krivanogich. More recently, on June 1st, Project published an investigation by journalist Katya Arenina about the short-lived union between businessman Nikolai Shamalov and Ekaterina Tikhonova, Vladimir Putin's second daughter, a relationship that the president has never publicly acknowledged. Digging through leaked emails and telephone records, Project discovered that the couple never legally wed, despite a lavish wedding ceremony. In Putin's family, such schemes to keep relationships off the books are a common means of concealing affluence, Project explains. This is especially true when it comes to the properties scattered beyond the presidential residence outside Moscow, an array of mansions that Project calls Putin's own royal village. For more details about this recent investigation and what it tells us about the nature of the Putin regime, here is Prek's editor-in-chief, Roman Badan. Well, you can imagine, I'm quite experienced guy and almost nothing can really surprise me a lot, but it's always like a new episode of the same dirty story. Sometimes it looks like we know everything about Putin, but then he commits something which really surprises you. And in this case, I would say I am really surprised how Putin is concerned about money and about his assets in a very literal way. Look, it's Putin who literally owns all the mansions described in our story. It's literally Putin's offshores. We are not talking about Kirill Shamalov, actually, or even Katerina Tikhonova or Artura Cheretny. They are not real owners, even literal. In terms of the law, they don't possess anything of that. It's Putin who owns all that mentions. Of course, we knew that kind of thing about Putin, but it's always striking me a lot, like, Unbelievable. He owns everything in our country, but anyway, he prefers to have like all that assets, literally in his hands. One question I had was while reading the story, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but Shamalov and Tikhonova, they get divorced, obviously, and Shamalov has to return all of these assets and all this property. Actually, they never been married in the legal way. By the church, they were married. <laughs> yeah. 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 So in the eyes of God. But uh, <laughs> after, after, after this, this religious union is dissolved, yeah. uh, Shamalov has to give back yeah. 
property assets and so on why did they ever put it in his name even briefly i know that before it goes to him and after it disappears into all these offshores and it's constantly traded between different people why ever put it in his name at all why not just let him live there for a while why was it ever in his name uh good point of course we don't know the answer for sure but the idea is you know the word patsan which means like a boy in a very russian way in some cases, we see that Putin acts as Patsan, uh, let's say, as a gang member. Mm -hmm. He trusts people who are loyal to him. And in these cases, he, well, you know, it's a question of the relations inside Putin's family. At least he wanted to show that he trusts Shamala. He trusts his religious son-in-law. Probably that was the explanation. Mm -hmm. How do you explain the sort of different treatment that Shamalov gets after he separates from Putin's daughter versus Putin's seeming generosity for his ex-wife's new partner? I, I guess it's just that he's looking out for his children's mother, but it still strikes me as sort of, I mean, it's a little surprising to me that he's been quite ruthless against his daughter's ex, but his wife's ex is, or not his wife's ex, excuse me, his ex's partner is still getting pretty good treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're partially right that, of course, Ludmila Putin, the mother of the common daughters, right. first, second, well, look, uh, Putin's trust in his ex-family is not absolute. For example... It's not Artura Chiretny who owns his apartment in Moscow and his mansion in Novogorod. Again, we are talking about Putin's offshores, offshore companies. The only real estate which is really owned by Chiretny is a house in Biarritz in France. We've already gone over the fact that Shamalov and Tikhonova were never legally married. Why is it important that they never went to the registration office and put it on, on paper? Like this, this is like a key point you're making about how they try to hide things, basically. But like in your mind, what's the significance of not getting married officially? Well, of course, probably there is a, I don't know, religious or moral problem behind that, but we don't know for sure about that. Second, of course, it's a very easy way to hide their real estate. Mm -hmm. Because look, if we look at the uh, real estate registry of Russian Federation, we cannot find any mention of Tikhonova or Varansova or Lyudmila Cherepna, anybody who somehow related to Putin's family. So it's a very easy way to get back all that assets right. in case of like worst case scenario, like a divorce or... I don't know, death or things like that. Right. One of the amusing points in the story that comes up a couple of times is that Tikhonova and Shamalov, they're late with paying their contractors and like their service staff. Yeah. And there's some note in there from their French person, one of their French maids or whatever, like writing and saying, are you still alive? Are you still alive? Like the, the power's out, the, pool, the pool's not working. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and and look and look at the date. This message was sent. It was like the beginning of sanctioning process against Shamalov. So <laughs> it really makes sense. Is there anything to this with the French property? It makes sense that they stopped paying the staff because they couldn't go there, and I guess like the foundation is bad, and it would cost four million euros to fix it or whatever. So they just sort of forgot about it essentially because it was useless to them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. even in the with their Moscow property where they're living. They're like falling behind on paying staff. And I think in the story, you describe it as like they're living by the example of Tsarist royalty that never bothered with this. Like, what's your interpretation? Like, why are they, why are they cheap? That's the thing. It's like there are these instances where they're spending just enormous amounts of money and living the high life. And then they're not paying for dry cleaning. Well, I have quite a ridiculous explanation. Okay. I guess the real problem behind that is they don't feel like they have their own money. That's a problem. They want to live a high life, as you said, but at the same time, they perfectly understand they don't have their personal money. All they have, it's somebody's money. Timchenko, Putin, Michelson, they don't feel like they're real owners of all that. That's a problem. They dreamed about like good palace, well-decorated, whatever, cars, everything. But in reality, in some cases, they feel like they cannot spend so much money because they don't have them. All the money they have, they are virtual, actually. Does someone like Timchenka or one of these like state oligarchs, do you think they feel like they have money? or is this... There is a big difference between Timchenka and Shamalov. Shamalov, he's a young, non-experienced, he's not related to FSB or KGB. Timchenka is a different kind of person. He's a long time, very close friend and probably colleague of Mr. Putin from his KGB time. But to some extent, of course, Timchenko doesn't feel that he has everything actually, which is in legal terms belongs to him. As we like take as an example, the case of Gunva company. For a long period of time, Timchenko was saying that he's the only one beneficiary of this company. And then it appears that Tornbion Turkist has a stake in the company. And then Mr. Kolbin has a stake in the company. And actually, well, Kolbin is Putin and Tornquist, well, we don't know who is behind him. So it's a different situation with Timchenko, but to some extent, you are right. Timchenko is not a real owner as well. What seems insane to me is Shamalov, he like left Putin's daughter. Like I, that marriage must have been really yeah, bad. Still alive and still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's still alive, but also, yeah, that he like, he didn't just stick it out. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, like, so, I mean, maybe it was, it was like maybe more likely that Tuchonova was the one who couldn't stand it. But, but then yeah. Shamalov got remarried <laughs> again. Yeah. Just reading that, it's just like, wow, like. Not only were you essentially living fairly comfortably, it seems, although it's difficult to not really own anything, yes, but still, you're yes. allowed to live in a mansion. It one of the it's one of the most intriguing questions still remaining. I guess the answer is that his father is a very long, again, long time Putin's friend, again related with Putin via KGB and via many other like very market schemes. Uh, so I guess that's the reason. Yeah. Putin yeah. still trusts Shamalov Sr., but probably distrusts Shamalov Jr. 
Another question I had was, this is kind of just comes in at the end of the investigation, but you have a map of some of the drone strikes recently outside of Moscow. And I wonder, do you think, is it fair to say that those drones were aiming for the royal village that Putin set up? Are you actually saying it looks as though the drones are, are targeting that compound or... Well, of course, we cannot say for sure it's one of the hypotheses, but I see this hypothesis as a very, as a very real and very possible because, well, look, we have at least three drones which were intercepted yeah. above Rublovka, like bigger Rublovka region, three of them. Of course, Rublovka is westward from Moscow and even a little bit to the south. So probably the explanation is. It's on the way from Ukraine to Moscow, but if you are a Ukrainian, I don't know, intelligence commander, what would you do if you have a plan to attack Moscow or probably Russia elite with drones? Rublovka is a very logical, very possible target for that kind of attack. So again, it's one of the hypotheses based on the fact that we have three drones intercepted yeah. above Rublovka, on Rublovka region area, but we don't know for sure. I get it's very easy to understand if Russian law enforcement bodies investigate the scripts on the downed yeah. drones, but we don't know the result of the expertise. I mean, for once now with several projects, that's Andrei Zakharov, the other investigative journalist I mentioned at the top of this show, who's worked together closely with Badanin on multiple stories. Zakharov has spent a lot of time trying to crawl around inside the president's head, metaphorically speaking. I asked Andrei what he would like to know most about the president that has eluded him so far. First question I had was, on one hand, Vladimir Putin is this very secretive figure, right? He like hides his children, he hides his lovers, he hides his ex-wife's lover. He hides his lover's children. He's hiding all kinds of things. Properties and assets are being registered under offshore companies. And there's just a lot of effort that seems to be put into hiding things from the public. But then on the other hand, investigative journalists like you have managed to dig up quite a bit about all this stuff. So I, what I wanted to ask you first was, what do you think is still the most mysterious, least understood part of Vladimir Putin's personal life? Well, if we look at it from, from a journalistic point of view, we still have to prove that he's in relationship with Alina Kabaeva. Mm -hmm. I think Project and Badanian did it, or they managed to come closer than anyone else to that question. But still, if we speak about facts, right? Yeah. So we just need worry some you know, fact that will everybody will, will say, yeah, we believe in it now. But for me, there are more interesting things like his childhood, because from psychological point of view, we should understand why he became such a person, right? This narcissism with this high scale of revenge that he has and other stuff. So I really want to, you know, to understand what his relationship with mother and father was. If you had a crystal ball or a magic time machine, what you would like best is to go back and watch him be a child and see how he developed? 
Yeah, but yeah, he mentioned he mentioned something in in his uh, in his in his book. He didn't write a book, but when he became president, there were a series of interviews with him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it, his childhood will give us a lot of answers. I think. So if, if we speak about something that we can't reach, because as a journalist we can right. prove that he has some relationship with Kabyle. But I think from a psychological point of view, we should understand how and why he became such a person. At the same time, still there are people like Rottenberg and other people who know him from his childhood. So maybe in some time, they will speak about his childhood because they were together in a sport club since Putin was six, I think, something like that. So they know a lot about him. So I do hope that in some time they will speak about this time too, mm-hmm. and we will manage to understand the source of his, I don't know, obsession with homosexualism, for example. It's also very interesting. Why is right. he so homophobic, right? Or the source of his narcissism and other stuff. So I think that in some time we will receive answers to that, to these questions. You mentioned that you know he's spoken about his uh, early days in a few interviews, and that's what we have. We have to rely a lot on something like that. It would be nice if we had, you know, some other way of verifying or, or analyzing that part of his life. How much in general, when we talk about his private life, how much would you say is pulled from materials that like he has released himself either in an interview or in some kind of document versus the things that investigative journalists have dug up that he presumably and the Kremlin generally did not want to release. I guess because a lot of the questions have to do with whenever there's some kind of investigation, typically somebody will say, oh, well, that was leaked to achieve this goal or that goal. In terms of the picture of his private life, do you think that most of those like sort of details about his lovers, about his children and so on, are those details that were just found through the tenacity of journalists or is somebody helping to reveal part of his life on the inside? I think that 95% of what we know about him, we got from sources, leaked databases, I mean, all the things which we reached during our investigations. And only 5% we know from what he was saying. <laughs> yeah, and we always should remember that this is not the person whom we should trust. Right. But by the way, I, I want to reread this book, which was published when he became president, because when Navalny together with Bellinger, they made this investigation about Navalny's poisoning. They found in a book, which was written by first Putin's wife, Lyudmila, that she was in a deep friendship with one German woman, and it helped them. And one more thing, which I found in that book after that, which is very interesting, is that when she was pregnant, first Putin's wife, he never helped her when she was carrying bags from shopping on fourth on the fifth floor. So your wife is pregnant. Right. I think this thing gives us a lot of information about him. So I think that if we come back to this book again, I'm going to do it. Maybe we'll find some, you know, some new facts that will help us to understand why he's such a person as he is. Why do you think that he tries so hard to hide information about his mistress or when he was married it made sense to i suppose hide that to keep up the illusion that he was a faithful husband and that his wife was a faithful wife and that they had a happy marriage and so on but he's been divorced now for 
publicly anyway for many years and you know his kids are just independent women like why hide all this information certainly there are autocrats in other countries that make a big point of publicizing their families because they're looking for heirs or they're just looking to perpetuate their you know their power or whatever but putin hasn't gone that route i mean i'm asking you i guess to do a little bit of psychoanalysis but just you know you've poured over all these details you must have thought about it what conclusions have you come to first of all i think that Putin always wants to look as a good person. Hmm. Even when now war reporters, pro-Kremlin war reporters ask him, why didn't we start this war in 2014 when the Ukraine army was so weak? Mm -hmm. And instead of saying, you know, we were afraid of sanctions or it was a mistake, he started to give a 15 minutes lecture that he is right because now we have such a weapon, such weapon, another weapon. He always wants to look as a good person, you know. Mm -hmm. So from this point to admit that, you know, you have or you had a mistress is not a good thing because, you know, you had a wife at the same time, you have mm -hmm. a daughter from another woman. And this, from this thing, all this stuff about traditional values is going from because in his behavior, there are no place for traditional family because he doesn't have an even family when he's speaking. I am for a traditional family. We all want to ask him, okay, but you even don't have family. We know nothing about your family. But in public, he wants to be a good person. So from this point, it is important to hide everything because you want to look as a person with high morality, first of all. Then I think that when we will have more information about his childhood, we'll understand why he wants to hide everything. And another thing is that these women, I mean, Kabaeva and Kvanogi before, they were supported by his friends, financially supported by his friends. I mean, Yuri Kovalchuk is the main figure here, who was his friend from the 90s. They were neighbors in a, what we call Dacha, in a village near St. Petersburg. And so Kovalchuk became a billionaire thanks to Putin. And he was always responsible for his women. And so if you admit that this is your wife or you have any relationship with Krivanogich, then there will be questions. Okay, so Kovalchuk gave her shares of his bank. Kovalchuk bought her a luxury apartment in St. Petersburg, but all his billions of, of rubles from the state because he became a billionaire thanks to the state, thanks to the fact that they bought Gazprom companies. So here are things you need to hide mm -hmm. because then people can ask, okay, but Kovalchuk is also responsible for, for this palace, for that palace. And so if you hide a palace, which was built with the Kovalchuk's money, right? Then you have to hide a woman, which <laughs> is supported by Kovalchuk. So from a palace, everything is starting from a palace. Uh -huh. And uh, we know that Kovalchuk started to support him in the 90s. There were other figures like Kovalchuk around Putin always. So he always lived in this world when here is an honest man with high morality, officially. Mm -hmm. And there are people who help him financially, like Kovalchuk, Raudugin, and other, I know, Timchenko, and all other friends. Mm -hmm. and, you and you have to hide this, all this life. And somewhere in this life, besides palaces, there are women, and they're a part of this secret. How did you find Svetlana Krivonogov? I lived and worked in St. Petersburg at Fontanka Datru. This is the leading 
St. Petersburg Media. And when I worked there, I heard about Kivanogi's friend, Dina Selevich. She was in close relationship with Putin's bodyguard, Zolotov, who is at the head of Rosguardia now. Mm-hmm. So I heard about her. And when I moved to Moscow, and I worked there for several media, including BBC and Projekt, and I always wanted to make this investigation about her because she was Zolotov's mistress with uh, some business thanks to that. And uh, when I came to Projekt in 2021, I think, no, 2020, sorry, I started to investigate it because Badarin said, yeah, this good story. And uh, I talked to some man who knew Putin from the beginning, from the end of, of 90s, I think. And he said, yeah, Tselevich is, is a good hero for your investigation, but she has a, a friend. And I will never tell you her name because I will be killed. But she was Putin's mistress. Right. And after that, I started to look closer to Tselevich. And as you know, in Russia, there are a lot of leaked databases. So there's a leaked database of flights from the beginning of the century and even from the end of the 90s, a big database called Sirena. This is the name of the system, of the police system, with these records. So I looked at it and just looked who accompanied Tselevich in, in those times. And this is how I found Krivanogich. And in fact, mm-hmm. people knew about her because she had small shares of Russia Bank, which is like, according to the US government, bank of Putin's friends. Right. Then I found her daughter in vk.com. And when I found her daughter, I understood everything because she's she like, like him. yeah, yeah, she's <laughs> like Putin. What's happened to her lately? Because I know that immediately after your investigation in November 2020, I guess, yeah. she was unusually kind of public. Like she even joined like a clubhouse chat room, I think at one point and, and spoke, you know, publicly, I guess sort of publicly clubhouse isn't totally public, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't public. I think she had like an Instagram account where she never quite showed her face, but still like she's doing things more publicly and kind of, and then I don't know if she's still around. Maybe they shut that down. I'm not sure if they said like stay out of the public eye and she did, or if she's still doing it. I was in a big dilemma in those times because mm-hmm. I thought, okay, but maybe she would knew who was her father from me. I mm-hmm. think it wouldn't be okay. I mean, public interest is on my side, sure. Sure. But anyway, from moral point of view, yeah. she's not guilty that she's right. Putin's daughter, right? And I still don't know if she knew it from me or she knew it before. I talked to her, I mean, I write to her once after that clubhouse conversation, and we had a small chat. And she said that when this investigation was published, first she was very angry with me, like she was saying, you know, if he is my father, please do something with him. But then she decided that it is like, because she always wanted to be a designer, fashion designer, yeah. and to be famous. And she told me that she decided that it is time for her, not because to use this opportunity, but it's like, you know, an active, yeah. an active step forward. I will take all the best from this situation. This is what she was saying to me. Mm-hmm. So this is why she became public and she gave all these interviews. And I think that for her and for Krivonogich too, it was important from some point to legislate her with this investigation. Because in February 2021, there was an interview with her in the Russian version of GQ magazine. Mm-hmm. And it was 
two weeks before she became 18 and from the Russian law, the only way to publish an interview with her was to receive permission from Krivonogich. And she gave such a permission. A reporter from the GQ showed it to me. Mm-hmm. So for some point of view, maybe it was important for them to legislate maybe. her this way. I don't know, for what? For psychological reason or financial reason? I don't know. Yeah. And there was a very good interview with her in August 2021, I think, or in September, when a reporter asked her what would she say if she met Putin? There's such a question which Yuri Duty, a famous Russian blogger, always asks his heroes, mm-hmm. what would you do if you met Putin? And uh, when I read this interview, I was shocked with her answer because it is said in the interview that she was silent for one minute. Then she said, why? And in this why, there is a lot of you know, psychological stuff because most of children who were rejected by their fathers, they all want to ask them, why, why did you do that? This is my interpretation of this answer. Right. And as far as I know, something happened in October 2021 because she deleted her Instagram account and she's no more public. It looks like somebody told her, stop it. Yeah. And as far as I know, she's in Paris now. She's studying in some fashion school there. And again, I don't think that she's guilty that she's Putin's sure. daughter, but still my role in her life, um, sometimes... I look like a small devil here because, you know, maybe I ruined her life somehow. But she's in Paris, yeah, starting fashion design there. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.